Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast, and this episode may be our most Marxist so far, because we're going to be spending the next hour or so talking about the relationship between people and their labor. My name is Austin, and I am joined by two other members of the Special Vehicles Unit. I've got Tobias with me. I'm sorry, I was thinking about that glistening metal body. Can't, can't quit thinking about that metal body. And I've got Bill. Trying to make sure that the body does not get scratched as I'm trying to cross the tunnel bridge going after the runaway labor that is getting away. And on this episode, we are doing our, actually our very first Patreon requested episode where one of our Nerve Commander level patrons over on patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime has submitted to us a request for an anime title to review. The title we're reviewing is the Pat Labor, the Mobile Police OVA from 1988. And because this is a Patreon request, we want to credit our executive producer, Drew H., as being, well, the executive producer of this episode. And we have a paragraph or so from Drew on what his reasoning was for picking this, uh, which we'll read here just shortly, but it's actually been kind of a minute since we've gathered to record to talk about something that wasn't a convention. Um, So I did want to ask you two guys, you know, in relation to anime current events and your own sub-podcast on this feed, A Grand Line Reborn, uh, Netflix just recently released a second trailer for their live-action uh, perhaps ill-advised live-action adaptation of One Piece. So how are you guys feeling about this so far? Bill, you should be the positive for us and go first. Why didn't they release this trailer first? This trailer was 100 times better than the first trailer they put out. Because the first trailer had a bunch of alarm bells going in my head of just, oh no, it's going to be like Josh Weed and Quippy. And they're going to do really bad VFX work because they have to meet a certain deadline. And it feels like they wanted to put the second trailer out first, but they still had special effects work to do. And they were still filming. (laughs) So this trailer gave me a lot more hope. I'm still going in with low expectations because of Netflix's prior adaptations. But I'm hopeful, like, uh, the the pirates of Arlong are not fully CG. They It looks like a, just a dude with a prosthetic nose. So I'm glad they didn't fall for that trap. And the VFX work for Luffy's powers doesn't look as bad as I thought it was going to look. So I'm, I'm hopeful. So is there anything specific that makes you more hopeful for this one as opposed to the Bebop one? Because I think we all remember being, well, at least for me, I was kind of excited for the Bebop adaptation based on their debut trailer, which I thought was kind of fun. Like that trailer might be the best thing to have come out of that <laughs> of that whole project, honestly. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know, with Bebop being such a recent memory, like I, I struggle seeing your perspective of 
of hopefulness. I don't I don't mean to be such a no. negative Nancy, but there's there anything that kind of any positive force that really makes you think, ah, this might actually not be terrible. I think he's coat. <laughs> <laughs> I think what helps is at least with the Bebop one, Watson Abe's approval was kind of rubber stamped where he wasn't giving a lot of statements about the production. Whereas Oda has said multiple times about his involvement. Now, granted, that could also be rubber stamped, but it feels like, at least from the outside, he's been a lot more involved than Watanabe was with Bebop. And from what I'm seeing based off the second trailer, they're not falling into previous traps. Like, they could have made Arlong just a CG monstrosity. But no, it's an actual human being in makeup with prosthetics and he doesn't look Wait, who it, I I'm, I I know nothing I know nothing about One Piece. Is Arlong the guy with the weird nose? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, he's the big fish man with a serrated big nose. Not to be confused okay. with Usopp, the regular crew member who's got a weird nose. Yes. Or Captain Buggy, who has a clown nose that I guess or, is a weird nose. And, or the one guy that's a giraffe, apparently, that also has a weird nose. Weird yeah. noses are a thing in One Piece, apparently. Mm, but uh, also, Buggy looked way better in this trailer than he did in the first trailer. <laughs> like, his uh, mm. his abilities that they showed off in the second trailer looked pretty decent. What is it, What are his abilities? Other than being a clown. He, <laughs> he can split his body into various parts and, like, move it around. So like the part in the middle where you see the the dude is like chopped up into pieces and the, the pieces are flying around each other. That's that's buggy. Oh right, I do I do kind of remember that now. Okay, because I I saw the trailer and I was like, man, this certainly looks like a thing. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, I, yeah. I agree with Bill that this is certainly a better trailer than the first one. Absolutely, I still am butting up against the idea that One Piece is a very cartoony thing by its very nature, and the thing that I've seen watching you know reading it is that i think it works the best in manga form even seeing it the car the the anime it just doesn't feel right to me or as right as the manga does and unfortunately you know as better cut the trailer is you're still you still have goofy ass cartoon characters in live action and you have stuff i i gotta disagree i don't think the buggy thing looked good it looked kind of goofy and silly contrasted with the realistic characters um, but not yeah, in a way that's goofy and silly that you would approve of. I don't know. Like, I is think that what you're trying a, to say? Well, this, the, you have the, it's just the very issue of the thing. You've got, you know, you have these like realistic looking scenes of the big boats and like it, it looks maybe not overly serious, but it's like, okay, we're, we're going on a pirate adventure where there, it almost makes me think of the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies from back then. Okay. You have a big galleon, you've got a pirate crew, they're doing it, but then you've got Arlong with, the goofy ass news it's sure I, I, th- I agree with bill that it looks better as a prop better than it would as a cg thing but then you've got stuff like the action scenes where they're obviously being cg thrown together there's a part where sanji's doing a kick and he kicks a guy in midair while he floats to the ground and again that's what he does in the show the the original like anime the original manga but he, i don't think it looks good in live action and i think that's where my struggle is is that bebop is I say realistic. It is is realistic in a, a degree, and they could have made well, a compared serious to One show. Piece. Yeah, yeah, and they could have made it serious, but unfortunately, it fell apart with the writing. And you know, I just I I I don't want to be too overly negative. 
I'm not coming in with any hopes. I will probably watch an episode just like I did with Bebop <laughs> to see what it looks like. I I still just got to feel just why aren't you people watching, reading the original stuff? Why do we need to I, have live action Cowboy Bebop? And why do we need I, to have live I, action One Piece? Now, I, I want to say I don't disagree with your with your points. Like, I don't want to sound like, oh, I'm. I think this is going to be awesome, and I'm drinking the Kool Aid, and everything's great. No, <laughs> I'm. I'm going in with a low expectations because a trailer is not is not an episode. So again, we'll see how the characterization and the writing is, and I can see your point because One Piece is a very goofy, cartoony world, and it's hard to really illustrate that in live action. Yeah. But at least they're embracing it and not hiding from it. They're not. In, they're not I, hiding. They're not hiding from the goofiness. I have a question for both of yeah. you. So, I think many many things plagued the Cowboy Bebop live action show. But one of the principal things that I feel like plagued it from the outset was that they made a decision to focus on probably one of the worst narrative ideas they possibly could have gone with which was make Vicious and Julia a much larger part of the show. So, in you guys' imagination, what would be the equivalent horrible decision that the, that the writers could do to, like, completely derail One Piece, like, straight out of the gate? Uh, in a similar narrative theme? I think if they tried yeah, to... It, from a writing perspective. One thing that I've seen people talk about already is they are referencing characters that show up later. They're like, they showed this, the the famous opening, you know, with uh, Goldie Roger and is, you know, I buried it all in one piece uh, scene. And apparently... That mustache looks good. It's not as big as it should be, though. I'll say that. <laughs> but regardless, <laughs> apparently, apparently in the scene, in the trailer, they have a bunch of characters that don't show up until later. So if I, if they really leaned into the whole MCU-esque, you know, there's references in every corner with every character, I just think that's, that is very presumptuous that they're even going to get that far. Because let's be honest, good or bad, this is not going to last more than one season. We're going to get the East Blue arc. They may reference, you know, the stuff later, but we're not going to get more. <laughs> unless, unless this is I mean, so wildly different. Even, even if it's great and people watch it, this is Netflix. They're not going to make three seasons of this. So what's the point no, of showing stuff that would happen? Certainly not with the writer's strike going on. They'll, sure, make yeah. two se- they'll make two seasons and cancel it, Tobias. It's two seasons and then you're done. Exactly. We'll get, uh, we'll so get halfway that, through uh, a match part. You're saying characters from One Piece Red will show up in like episode four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I am very uh, doubtful. But again, <laughs> I, I, I get what... <laughs> Tobias's complaint is with like, oh, you're just doing teasing to tease stuff that we'll never get. But I don't. I think as long as it's not so obtrusive, and they don't overly focus on a, other characters, like if they decided we're gonna focus on Shanks and give him more of a bigger role in the in the first season than what he is in the manga and the anime adaptation, then I'm worried. <laughs> well, I cannot I cannot wait to hear both of you uh, pontificate ad nauseum on a upcoming episode of A Grand Line Reborn 
where you talk about uh this this netflix show at length can't what's, wait what's, what's gonna happen on the very end of the last episode we're gonna see bb uh, and she's gonna look at the camera and say well that happened <laughs> Seinfeld base. <laughs> that will be the last thing we see. No, they're gonna. It's, it's gonna be a VV crocodile tease, and then so long, everybody. <laughs> or they, or they find the One Piece, but it's like that scene in what is it, Reservoir Dogs, or something, where like they just open the back of the car and it just like is glowing, but you don't actually see what's in it. Oh, that's Pulp Fiction. Oh, Pulp Fiction. Okay, yeah. all Tarantino movies are the same. It's, it's the briefcase. All of them. they're They're all the same same. yeah they're all the same all right well we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're actually going to be talking about what drew paid for the fat labor ova already bring it up our other podcast a grand learning born i do want to point out that next week i mean we're probably not gonna have this episode out for a few weeks anyway but next week i'll be in las vegas for FanFest. uh we should have actually was a recent guest on the carbuckle chronicles by our sister cast the awesome cast talking about our fan fest predictions so i uh, go to give that a listen while you're at it <laughs> So like I said earlier, we've got a brief note from Drew, our executive producer for this, talking about why he picked the Mobile Police Pat Labor OVA as his choice for his patron bonus. So Drew says, There's just something special about the first Pat Labor OVA series, a charming slice-of-life mecha series where our misfit heroes have to contend with a traffic jam before they can get to any sort of action. There's a fun variety of stories, all of which endear you to the gang before things take a sudden turn into political thriller territory. I love the balance of tone that Oshi, Ito, and the headgear slash Studio Dean crew pull off. For Oshi in particular, it almost feels like you're watching the shift from his comedic Ursa Yatsura days into his darker, thought-provoking work occur in, this, in his six episodes, all while still being a delightful watch through and through. IMO, it's a great primer for the franchise as a whole. The more political action thriller tones of the films, specifically Pat Labor 2, and the silly, slice-of-life shenanigans of the TV series. All of it's here in just seven half-hour episodes. So what do you guys think about Drew's note? Right off the bat, I think he nailed it on the head, hit the nail on the head with the comparison to Yurisa Yatsura. Even though the, the material itself, of course, is not the same, there is a common sort of physicality and slapstick nature between the two that I noticed that I think there's a certain sort of comedic timing that works really well here. You kind of sometimes see, but sometimes don't really see done in in anime comedies that I think makes Pat Labor work in ways that others don't. Yeah. I, I think he hit the nail right on the head with his uh, wonderful little paragraph. I I love the mixture of comedy. It kind of reminds me of sort of those 
80s cop uh, comedies from the 80s, like the Police Academy movies or the Naked Gun movies, where we're playing it serious, the situations we're in, but the characters can be really silly. And just that juxtaposition can bring out a lot of uh, fun and comedic elements. And I really like the note about Oshi's beginning shift from his more Yurisayatsura days, which were more comedic and light, to his more deep political, philosophical notes he would later reach with uh, works like Pat Labor 2 or Ghost in the Shell 2. Yeah, and I find this fascinating. You know, we'll talk about this briefly in a second, but like Oshi was not instantly in love with the idea of doing this show because he had never really worked in sci-fi like this and didn't know if he wanted to do like a giant robot mecha kind of thing. But it's funny because like essentially his legacy as far as what most people know him for is not necessarily his Ursa Yatsura stuff, but like Ghost in the Shell and his very like slow and sort of uh, cerebral like cyberpunk work, which he probably, I mean, maybe he would have gotten to it eventually, but working on Pat Labor was a bit of a push for him in that direction. It's kind of funny to hear you say that because initially the group Headgear was really hesitant to bring him on in the first place because they figured anything he touched was going to turn into like, it all ends in a dream. It's all cerebral. <laughs> it makes you think about it, which is not really the tone they wanted for something like Pat Labor. Well, <laughs> uh, unfortunately for them, <laughs> they'd get that later, but not in this OVA. <laughs> so the Pat Labor OVA is the first entry in the Pat Labor franchise, with seven episodes released between April of 1988 and June of 1989. It's an original franchise concept created by a group of artists called Headgear, like Tobias mentioned, which consists of Mamoru Oshii, Yutaka Izubuchi, Kazunori Ito, Akemi Takada, and Masami Yuki. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about their credentials here in just a second, but the concept of Pat Labor was first created in the early 1980s by Uzubuchi, Yuki, Ito, and Takada, and they all worked together to pitch it to Studio Sunrise, but they didn't have much luck with that endeavor. Uh, this was during the OVA boom of the 1980s, and they were asking for a fairly large budget and 13 episodes right out of the gate for a original property, um, but Bandai and Sunrise decided to pass on it. Uh, the team then sort of, you know, reconfigured themselves and decided to cut the proposed budget and scale it back to just six episodes, and Kazunori Ito approached Mamoru Oshii to be the director of the series. Again, like we said, Oshii wasn't particularly interested in doing a mecha show, but they wore him down, and they ended up getting Studio Dean to agree to produce the series, because Oshi was involved with the project and he had been working steadily with them for a number of years. But a lot of the actual animation work was handled by the then young studio production IG. Uh, so then Pat Labor debuted in the spring of 1988 with the first OVA episodes and a tie-in manga running concurrently. It was such a big hit that they were able to fund a seventh OVA episode and they began production on a feature film. Can I... I would like to briefly mention on the bit of research we did uh, for Pat Labor, I found the budget that they had to deal with pretty interesting because, as you said, this was the OVA boom where money was not really an object. And they they said in, in one of the research notes that most OVAs 
cost around 20 to 30 million yen. Whereas for this, their budget they were shooting for was around 10 million yen per episode. And even with 10 million yen, they had to be very strategic in where their money went. So maybe they would spend 7 million yen or 5 million yen uh, for one episode and then 8 million yen for another one. So even with the support they got from Studio Dean, uh, they had to be really tight with their budget. And for what they did, I think it's really impressive. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, watching it, if you look for ways in which they were trying to save on cost for certain sequences, there is definitely a couple of times where they do so using some just clever camera work and clever staging work. Like, Mm -hmm. there's one episode later on, it's the one... It's, I think, the first of the two-parter episodes where there's just a scene where Goto and Shinobu are talking in the car, but it's a very Evangelion-esque scene where it's just like their silhouette and you see the uh, the outside streetlights and the... I don't know if it's snowing yet in that scene yet, but it's just like... It's just a static shot, but they're both talking to each other, but it's supposed to be kind of like this secretive conversation that they don't want anybody else to know about because there's eyes everywhere but mm-hmm. it's just like a static shot for like two minutes and that shot in of itself probably didn't cost very much so they were able to take it and use that money on other sequences where they really needed it to yeah and they did some interesting camera work like in the episode where they go to that training uh where they go do the training episode which is like their scooby-doo uh Agatha Christie mystery episode. There's a great yeah. se- there's a great sequence when Clancy, I think it's Clancy, hears a scream, and the camera oh, yeah. goes to, goes through a first person's perspective as we see her run through multiple doorways. It's like that's that's a really cool shot sequence. I love that sequence. It reminds me a ton of the sequence in Urusei Yatsura, Beautiful Dreamer, where yeah. they're going through the school. It just it just seems like a sequence ripped ripped straight out of that. One thing you can definitely see in Oshi's work is he just a love for like traditional live action movies, whether it's something like cinematography, like we guys are talking about, or references to Godzilla and the and the episode before that. There's um, <laughs> I think it's I think Tomino had mentioned early on in the production of Gundam that you can't just watch anime to make anime. You've got to watch other movies and read other books to make something new. That sounds well, like more of a Miyazaki thing than a Tamino <laughs> thing, but they probably thought they probably both feel that way. Well, well it's also I think Tamino though... said it in an asshole kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> you well, it's a bunch of dirty nerds. Well, it's also been noted that a lot of people that tried to break into the film business that couldn't really break in, they went into anime production because the barrier to entry was much lower. So people like to me aren't you aren't you talking literally about oshi (laughs) well yeah oshi and to me oshi and tamino were people that loved film and would rather do film but they couldn't break in so they had to go to anime another thing i want to point out here is the the idea of headgear so already at this point in the what mid late 80s we already see like production committees come into play so headgear was founded as a way for these individual creators to own the rights to their work. So even now, 
um, you know, the Pat Labor franchise is is sort of produced, run by the group Headgear. So we see the later series that Oshi didn't work on. He still gets like residuals and, and whatnot from that. So, I mean, considering we just talked about past week, Yuri on Ice in the movie, that being hung up because of the way the production committee screwed over MAPPA and how MAPPA's taking other work. I think it's kind of funny how that, that keeps coming up. I think the only equivalent that I could think of to Headgear would be the Manga Collective Clamp where it's a group of manga creators where they own their work as part of this collective. It's a pretty cool model. I don't know if it would be applicable in all circumstances, but I think it is definitely worth praising and pointing out the uh, the the benefits of, of something like that whenever it's able to happen. Well, I mean, regardless, as we see now, standard production committee model really isn't healthy. You're working out for the industry, so... No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so just again to break down the crew a little bit here of course we've already mentioned him the ova was directed by the legendary anime director mamoru Oshii. uh he did the first six episodes of the pat labor ova with naoyuki yoshinaga directing episode seven Oshi is probably best known for directing Ghost in the Shell 1 and 2, and for his time directing a large amount of Urusei Yatsura TV and the movie Beautiful Dreamer, which he was coming off of towards the beginning of working on the Pat Labor OVA. He also directed the Pat Labor movies, but he did not direct the TV series or Episode 7 of the OVA or The New Files, which came after the TV show. That went to director Naoyuki Yoshinaga, who directed 19 episodes of Ursa Yatsura with Oshi and after he left the series. Uh, he went on to be the head director of Pat Labor TV and Pat Labor The New Files. The character designer is Akemi Takata, who worked on character designs for Ursa Yatsura, so there's another connection with Oshi. We'll see a continued stream of Ursa Yatsura connections throughout talking about the crew and the cast. And she also did the character art for Kimagure Orange Road, Magical Angel Creamy Mommy, and a large portion of Maison Ikoku, and she illustrated the Pat Labor manga that came out as a tie-in with the OVA. I really, I did not know that uh, she did also the character designs for uh, Maison Ikoku and uh, Kimagure Orange Road, because whenever people talk about like that 80s aesthetic in terms of anime character designs, they're usually talking about Meizani Koku and Kimigure Orange Road, and just their particular style and the way they look. And it'd be, and I, Pat Labor never really gets fit into that group of Kimigure Orange Road, Meizani Koku, um, in terms of the visual, the visual style. So that's that's cool to hear. It would be. I don't really know why that is. I mean, it certainly has that look to it. But maybe because the most popular Pat Labor things that exist are the two Oshi movies. And those have like a pretty different art style to them. Maybe people just don't think about it because the Pat Labor OVAs and the TV show definitely have more of that Takata look to it. But maybe mm-hmm. people just don't, are just not as connected to those because the Oshi movies kind of drown it out. I don't know. I'm just pontificating. I don't know what I'm talking about. I mean, I think when you think of the stereotypical 80s VHS aesthetic that is, you know, is popular with the kids and their aesthetic pages, you think of things like Kimiko Road 
and that has a certain look to it that carries over here. I don't think the kids these days are really watching any of Pat Labor, unfortunately, but with these character designs sharing traits with the more, more popular stuff, I can see that comparison for sure. And the mechanical designer is Yutaka Izubuchi. Uh, he'd go on to design robots for a lot of the Mobile Suit Gundam OVAs and TV series of the 90s, and he did character designs for the record of Lodos War. He created the series Razafon and did a lot of design work for it, and he served as the chief director of Star Blazer's space battleship Yamato 2199. And the musical composer is Kenji Kawai, who is among who is probably one of the most prolific musical composers in anime. He's also done music for Ranma One Half, Mobile Suit Gundam Double O, the entire Higurashi franchise, Mob Psycho One Hundred, and both original Ghost in the Shell movies. Yeah, Kenji Kawai is one of the few anime musicians that I think most people could could name with people like Yoko Kano or. Uh, I'm probably gonna say his name. Yuki wrong. Kajura. Yeah. Yes. Hiroyuki Sawano. Yep. Joe Hisaishi. I've got a lot of them for some reason. Just Shiro top of my Sagasu. Head. <laughs> Shiro Sagasu. Oh man, his immaculate uh, outfits. I feel like I've talked about this before, <laughs> but if you haven't Googled Shiro Sagisu outfits, you should. All right, let's go over the synopsis of the series here. So, taking place in the far-flung future of 1998. Man, I remember when I could say that. <laughs> anyway, the far future of 1998, Japanese societies integrated these giant robots into industrial trades, like construction and even military combat and law enforcement. These robots are called labors. Uh, the story about labor centers around the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Special Vehicle Section 2, Division 2. A group of uh, ragtag rookies who go after criminals, and they all happen to be kind of idiots, if we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. We're probably going to talk about this later, but in each episode, I do kind of like that they have a narrator that basically states the premise of the series. And it kind of reminds me, I kept having Law & Order flashbacks whenever I saw <laughs> the monologue. <laughs> nah, I think the real synopsis of every episode that is repeated is the opening song, which is just about how much Noah is in love with her labor. <laughs> That's really what the show is about. It's pretty good. But anyway, let's go over our cast here. So uh, Austin already mentioned that Noi Izumi, sort of our, I guess, main character. They're all kind of main characters, but she feels like the protagonist if there is one uh she is a labor pilot well i guess an erstwhile labor pilot because i think the first episode is when she starts um she is voiced in the japanese dub by mina tominaka who was kasumi and city hunter and kozue nano and maizani koku i'm gonna bet right now noah is austin's favorite character uh time will tell time will tell <laughs> Well, anyway, her foil is Asuma Shinohara, the heir to the Shinohara Evi Industries company, who knows a whole lot about labors, but hates them for the most part. 
kind of a sarcastic jerk throughout most of the series. Uh, Shinohara is voiced by Toshio Furukawa, a name we have never talked about on this podcast. But if you haven't listened to any of Third Impact anime, Furukawa is the voice actor for Piccolo in Dragon Ball Z. He is a Taru in Urusei Atsura, the Shin in Fist of the North Star, and he's currently uh, voicing Ataru's dad in the reboot, the Urusei Atsura reboot. Urusei Atsura, if you will. Rounding up the crew, we are, we have Isao Ota, who's sort of the gun nut. He is the Blue Lives Matter of the group, for sure. Oh, man. Don't <laughs> sully him like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, he's sorry, Austin. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, Austin, I'm sorry. He would be part of that group would be like, we need to bring back the Japanese military. We need to gain our strength back. He would be one of those people. <laughs> You're saying he would have a Punisher logo on his pat labor? He would have or, an AR assault rifle. He, he'd be Dang. a big fan of uh, Kazuwuku Fukui, who wrote those uh, Gundam OVAs that is also very pro-military. <laughs> uh, but he is voiced by Michiro Ikemizu, who is Spike. Uh, Spike? Okay, I was thinking it was the Devilman franchise, but no. No. He's the character <laughs> called Spike the Devilman in Dragon Ball. Uh, General Pepper in Star Fox Assault. That's a, a deep, deep cut, if there ever was one. <laughs> and uh, George Black in Gunsmith Cats. Oh, and Anson Mark in Ursa Yatsa, the, the original. Uh, let's go over the rest of the small volume crew here. So we have also rounding out the, the group is Rome Yamazaki, the tall quiet guy uh who just kind of sits in the background for the most part uh is voiced by daisuke gori who is uh mr satan in dragon ball uh, in mobile suit gundam and mari <laughs> the other big character in project Aiko. sorry sorry I'm, I'm geeking i'm geeking out because uh i'm i know it's mr mr satan in japanese but i'm too used to the english name hercule one of my favorite Hercule. characters yeah. in, in Dragon Ball with how over the top he is. He's great. <laughs> yeah, man. I love how Hercule solves all those mysteries. Yep. Oh, he gets all the God. credit. Anyway, um, <laughs> he wrote me. I was making a, an Agatha Christie reference, but, you know, Bill, I figured you would be the person that would catch on to it, and you disappointed me. <laughs> I do that all the I time. You should be used to You should be for... used to it. <laughs> Gosh, dang it. Get me out of here. For what it's worth, I caught it, but I thought it was awful. So I was, kind of, I was opting to move on. <laughs> I, anyway. just need, I just need your attention. I don't need your praise. <laughs> anyway, so rounding up the, uh, the the group of misfits is Miki Yasu Shinshi, uh, the wife guy, basically. <laughs> Every joke around Shinshi is he, he has a wife. He, he's the only one in the group that has a wife. Uh, but he is voiced by Issei Futamata, who was Godai and Maisane Koku and Chibi in Urusei Yatsura. Really? Someone from Urusei Yatsura in this cast? Um, who would have thought? Shock of shocks. And then I think in the second episode, they get a new member of the group, uh, Kanaka Clancy, the badass uh, half-Japanese-American police officer who transfers over and becomes a regular member from there on out. Uh, she is voiced by Yo Inoue, is Salem Mass and uh, Hato actually, and the original Gundam, and Uberta and the Swan Princess movies. 
And they are led by Captain Keiichi Goto, secret, maybe not so secret best character of, of the entire series. Sort of he's the, pretty um, great. He's pretty awesome. Uh, voiced by Ryusuke Obayashi, who is Son Tinto and Ranma One Half, and a ton of background characters and armored troopers, Votons. I counted it. 17. 17 <laughs> background characters and Votons. So yeah, Goto is the. <laughs> Yeah. So Goto is the captain of Division 2, but his, I guess, equal, really superior is Captain Shinobu Naguma. Nagamo, sorry, let me do that again. So his um, his equal, but really superior is Captain Shinobu Nagamo, who is the captain of her Division 1. He always upstages the, the goofs in Division 2. Uh, she's voiced by Yoshiko Sakakibara, who is Haman Karn in Gundam, uh, Kushana in Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, uh, Integra Helsing in Helsing, and surprisingly, nobody in Urusayatsura. Shocking. Shocking. And uh, see, we got a couple of the mechanics, but sort of the main one the show focuses on is Shigeo Shiba, sort of the, the goofball one. He's voiced by Shigeru Chiba, who's Captain Buggy in One Piece, Kiwabara yeah. and Yu Yu Hakusho, and Megane in Urusei Atsura. <laughs> yeah. Shuichi Chiba, like had... Bill, the Bill, Bill Foreman Say You All Star. He's he's awesome in whatever he does. I always get excited when That's I hear the his thing. voice. That's the thing. I really wanted to include him mostly because, like, clearly Shigeo Shiba is just a play on his own name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He and the team must have been, like, good friends or something to just straight up name the character after him. And, like, Megane is, is uh, Oshii's original character in Urusei Yatsura. Like, I'm pretty sure oh. some of the other ones are, too. Like, Chibi and Onsen Mark, I think, are also original characters made by Oshii and the anime team. So, uh, it's pretty cool how he basically got, like, this, like, a, just a crew of people that he'd already worked with in Urusei Yatsura to come over and, you know, make this, you know, goofy cop show. Well, I guess just starting off here... First things first, what is our sort of individual histories with Pat Labor? For me, going into this podcast episode, I had already seen the Pat Labor OVAs and the movies and a decent portion of the TV show a couple years back, um, back when I was getting into a little bit more of like, you know, 80s, 90s, sort of more sci-fi mecha stuff back whenever I first started getting into, you know, Gundam and things like that. Um, I ended up watching a big chunk of Pat Labor with, with one of my friends who was already really into it. And I I really enjoyed watching it back then. I have pretty much had instantly endeared myself to the show. I thought all the characters were really fun and enjoyable, even if I found the show to be not the most narratively compelling series. I did really enjoy it. Uh, so that sort of carried me into having a fondness for the show, and it was nice to be able to come and revisit the OVA, which I had specifically fond feelings about um, for this podcast. But but for you guys, is Bill, is this your first time watching a Pat Labor thing? Well, you'd already seen the movies, right? Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, I learned about, I think I learned about Pat Labor from my brother, of all people, where I don't know how he heard about it, but he picked up the Pat Labor giant set that Sunday put out, and 
we just started watching it and we really enjoyed the OVAs together and we watched the first movie. I watched a bit of the early episodes of Tat Labor TV and then we watched the second movie, <laughs> which uh, he was not a huge fan of. I enjoyed it for what it was. And uh, so, yeah, it was. this was my second go-around watching the OVA series. So it was a nice revisit. Mm-hmm. Tobias? Yes, yeah, so I'm the only one here that hasn't watched the movies, I feel like, at this point. Mm. Uh, my, my introduction was uh, about 10 years ago, actually. It's funny you brought up Photoms because I was doing a, a group watch with some internet people. We're watching both Pat Labor TV and Votoms at the same time. So it's, it's kind of funny that this has uh, a deeper connection than I initially thought. Uh, I've watched, I don't know, the majority of the TV show. I don't think I finished it exactly, but that was my main experience with Pat Labor up until today, uh, where we watch the OVAs. I feel like the OVA does, as Drew said, encapsulate the series overall as a whole really well. But I do think that the um, the TV series gives us a lot more screen time with these characters that I think is very important. I think one of the reasons that I haven't really jumped to watch the movies is that I don't really consider Pat Labor's strength to be the serious political thriller kind of stuff. I think where Pat Labor sings is when you just have these silly characters doing uh, comedic stuff. When... um. I told people to watch this. I want to say um, in Andrew and I did a panel a few years back on comedy anatomy, and this was one of my recommendations. And I compared it them to basically what if Brooklyn nine, nine had giant robots, a comparison that I still think holds up uh, even today, even though maybe Brooklyn nine, nine isn't as well known as it was in 2019. I still think that's kind of why I come to Pat Labor to begin with. This is a comedy with really silly characters, some fun slice of life. And it just happens to have a robot and a girl that is in love with her robot, you know? <laughs> I was trying to see if there was any connection between the robot being named Alphonse and Alphonse Elric, because I can't imagine that that name gets a lot of screen time in in Japanese, because it's not certainly not a Japanese name, but I couldn't find anything. So Hiromu Arakawa, if you're listening to this episode, <laughs> please write in and tell us if you did or did not be inspired by Pat Labor to name him Alphonse Elric, because I know you listen. But I mean, I'll, I'll echo you there, Tobias, as well, because um, I, I think the Pat, for me, the Pat Labor movies are, are good and fine, but I feel like everything that they do is done better in Ghosts in the Shell 1 and 2. So I will still put those on a bit of a higher pedestal than the Pat Labor movies, even though I think they're very solid. But the thing that endeared me is certainly like, the goofiness of the characters and sort of the mun the mun the mundanity is that a word of mm. sort of the everyday sort of in and ins and outs of them working as like you know in this special police division but the fact that they have to constantly deal with you know br- bureaucratic nonsense that gets in the way of them like you know serving and protecting so to speak and all of the nonsense that they even sell, they, they themselves inflict upon the team by their own individual quirks and whatnot. Like so, now yeah, being to... so now being so sensitive to, about harming Alphonse, that that's a that can be a hindrance because she just can't run into things and go forward because oh what if I <laughs> what if I hurt Alph 
Alphonse climbing down this this building or trying to get over this bridge. Oh no, what do I do? <laughs> or in the scenes like where the 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 labors don't really work so well with the situation that they're in. Like I'm thinking of the one episode where they have to like chase somebody into a tunnel. And then, like, one of them stands up and just, like, breaks the labor's head because the labor's <laughs> too tall for the tunnel. I'm just, like, it, it's small little things like that that, uh, <laughs> that make the show really, really funny and kind of grounded in this, uh, you know, sci-fi concept. But it's still very much like, well, what if we did actually have giant robots that were attempting to assist us in our everyday life? Well, nonsense like this would happen all the time. Yeah, weirdly though, there's not a lot of like building destruction, probably because of budget concerns. But I'm more astounded like they don't really destroy the city that badly when they go out and do whatever they need to do. It's pretty self-contained to whatever threat they're dealing with. I think like, that's one of the things I liked about the show is that yeah, in in other shows, especially more militaristic giant robot shows, there's just a lot of gunfire happening a lot of destruction in general you know the kind of stuff that kids watch this, these shows for but here everything is very or it feels very regulated and it feels very modern the fact mm-hmm. that of all this crew there are only two labor pilots the rest are part of the command crew and you know operate the trucks the, that um that move the labor around and you can sort of feel that almost bureaucracy that bureaucratic red tape that is required every time a labor is activated and a shot fired that it, it does feel a little out there when we do have the one episode where Ota fires a gun that he shouldn't, or like Austin mentioned, they tried to chase down a terrorist group only to end up you know, screwing over a tunnel because they didn't think not to stand up. Which was also <laughs> Ota's fault because he was also piloting going <laughs> under the tunnel. It's, it's, usually Ota's, it's usually Ota's fault because he's so excited to fire the gun it, it's it's like like someone that's addict that has a drug addiction or just like I really need to take the hit and fire the gun. Please let me fire the gun, please, please. <laughs> and and a lot of that is is definitely played for comedic effect, but I think it it's it's pulled off because of all of the uh, the implications of that. And another thing is like I feel like so you mentioned talking about this show in your comedy panel, and like it's definitely funny. But it's not funny like Ursa Yatsura is funny. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... No, actually, I don't know what you mean, because I don't agree with that statement. It's not okay, like well, it's goofy. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of my point. It's like Ursa Yatsura is, like, okay. very zany, very wacky, very, mm, like, in-your-face yeah. all the time. Gotcha. But yeah. I think Pat, Pat Labor is more... Uh, it's more deadpan. Like it's got goofy moments, right, right. but to me, to me, one of the funniest things, and maybe this is just what I find funny versus what other people find funny, is that in the very first episode, they're waiting for the labors to show up, and you, you know, you think, you know, this is the first episode, we're gonna see the cool labors show up on the truck, but no, they get delayed in a traffic jam multiple times, and then like the head mechanic, instead of like going inside and waiting for the next day 
just pulls himself out like a beach chair and a <laughs> and a and an umbrella and just like chills in the field waiting for him to show up. <laughs> just like that's not that's not that funny, but to me that's really funny. Like that's just it 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 shows off a quirk in his personality of like no, I'm gonna stay resolute. I'm gonna stay right here. I'm gonna wait for them to show up and I'm not leaving. <laughs> well, you know it's funny his characterization. He's, he's basically the coach from Gunbuster, right? <laughs> it looks like him. Yeah, he's got the glasses. He's super stoic, doesn't show any emotion whatsoever, just like the coach from Aim for the Ace and the coach from Gunbuster. <laughs> I think what really blends through, and I, I do agree, stuff like that is, is goofy in a way, although not as zany as Udisei Asara. But I think what really makes both of these series shine is the perfect immaculate sense of timing even mm-hmm. the little dialogue pieces like just go back and watch the first episode when like noah shows up and like introducing herself to the crew like there's just a sort of perfect timing as these jokes land and even things like that where they don't make a joke about how silly it is but he's just gonna sit out there he refuses to let his <laughs> honor you know, fall while he's going to wait for this momentous event you know it's, it's just stuff like that yeah overall there's and, a perfect and like all and the and the trainees show up, or not the trainees, but, like, the rookies show up. So, like, uh, Shinohara and Izumi and the rest of them. And, like, on their first day, they're, what, like, cutting grass and just, like, chilling in the office, like, eating snacks. Like, they don't do anything. It's just the mundanity of it all. But still, it's so charming because it's just like, well, I think we've all been in a situation where we think something's going to be, you know, super grand and exciting, but it ends up being just fairly mundane, and the juxtaposition of expectations and reality is is always pretty pretty funny. It's a good they chuckle also, out of me. They also do that in the second episode with the mayor from New York City that's coming, and they're they're afraid of a potential threat on his life and the bomb mm-hmm. threat. And like the first half of the episode, nothing really happens, and it's just the mundanity of them just waiting around in the car making sure the area is clear and it's a great callback for when um he has the fight with the old lady who then we learn was the terrorist <laughs> that sets up the bomb at the very end mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that's right and there's a great scene where again they're all just kind of schlubbing around and uh like i think noah goes out to get groceries and then they all fall asleep and then like goto kisses a foot or something it's quite funny that's a great episode uh most like it introduces clancy and uh who is a a kind of a fan favorite like she's clearly like i feel i feel like clancy is probably the communal best girl for all for all pat labor fans i mean she is pretty cool for sure uh and in that episode is like her first introduction 
<laughs> and then like she she totally proves her her awesomeness by being the one who uh you know disarms the bomb at the very end because in addition to being like this cool uh, agent from America she's also a very capable bomb diffuser which <laughs> is not the reason why she's there she just happens to be very good at that in addition to everything else that she's good at so she's able to take charge whenever there's a situation with a bomb related to the the mayor who's visiting who we never well, she, see in that episode she, she is the best line in that episode when Azuma is like I don't know whether to cut the red or the blue red or the blue oh no and then she just comes up picks his first choice and goes you did it <laughs> and then just he just he, he just crumples from the stress yeah. and just that that his reaction and just the the English of it all is is fantastic or her introduction is also great where yes she says in English like I am Clancy from New York and the and the the mostly dudes there just going English Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> and they, they they play on that as well in the in the English dub because I kind of bounce back and forth because you know I'm a dub I'm a dub guy most of the time if there's a dub I watch it and the dub for this even though it was a CPM production in like the late 90s early 2000s I thought it was fairly competent um and the way that they do that in the English version is basically just an inverse. So she says uh, something like Yoroshiku uh, Onigashimasu Kanuka Clancy Des or something, and everybody's like, "Oh my gosh, she speaks Japanese!" It's kind of a a fun reference to the sort of thing you see over in Japan when you speak Japanese well. They kind of freak out because you're not supposed to, as a gaijin, be able to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think to bring it back to to One Piece, Clancy is the Nico Robin of my labor which is why which is why bill likes her so much yeah yeah you got me she's 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 my favorite out of uh out of all the crew i'm not i'm not gonna hide it just as she doesn't have all the arms though uh, austin shouldn't hide that that noah is is his favorite i i know that's the case you can't deny it austin noah's pretty good well, who do you think my favorite character is then, Bill? If you're such an expert at reading people. It's Goto. Uh, probably, yeah. Be... Yeah, you called it. <laughs> you called it. <laughs> Goto is pretty awesome. He, watching this for the first time forever ago, he reminded me a lot of uh, Kakashi from Naruto, a sort of a, a, a person that is obviously a master at the situation, but they treat everything as a big joke. And I kind of, that's my, that's my favorite character trope is Goofy you know... Dude that is secretly skilled. He, you know, it's funny watching this again. Like he reminded me very much of Columbo where Mm, the way Columbo works is he has a very kind of disheveled personality that hides his intellect. So when he meets people, people think, Oh, he's just a simpleton. So I can run circles around him when actually he's really smart. And that's the same thing with, with Goto where, um, people, people at least, I think the viewer, when you initially meet him, you're just like, oh, he's just kind of aloof, doesn't re- isn't really aware or into what's going on. But no, he's actually very keenly aware of his crew's strengths, their weaknesses, and 
the situations that are around him. Yeah, I think one of the biggest examples of that is in the first of the two-parter episode where they all are sent home for New Year's. He Mm -hmm. decides to stay at the office. And on first impression, I think the characters and the audience is supposed to think, well, he's probably just staying at the office over New Year's because either he doesn't have a family or he's such a workaholic that he couldn't imagine leaving the office for a holiday but really the answer that it's revealed later on is because he has a really solid suspicion that they're being staked out by some unknown third party so he's like well i i should probably stick around because these guys look like they're up to no good mm-hmm. which nobody else catches on to i mean maybe shinobu does but definitely a multifaceted sort of character and i found kind of engaging even in the original mhm well, one thing I wanted to bring up also is that with me having seen the TV uh, version first, what I really enjoyed about that is being able to dive into these characters over a long form show. And going into this, of course, I knew these characters already. It was easy for me to read these as they progressed. But I'm really wondering just how well these stereotypes came through. Uh, for those of you that have maybe only watched the OVA series, like we don't really get a whole lot of Ota, for instance. It's I, I kind of made a joke about him being the Blue Lives Matter guy, but I feel like that's not really hugely apparent unless you watch the TV show where he's very much more of a conservative, reckless gun nut here. I think we've got, sure, the one episode where he fires the gun, but I, I kind of have to wonder how much of that was just my own preconceived read of these characters versus what we see in the OVA series. I think in this OVA, he comes off as, like, he just comes off as, like, really impulsive. Like, he really Mm. lets his emotions get the better of him, often to comedic effect. But if you think about it, I mean, it is pretty irresponsible that he is so emotionally driven while, you know, while he's supposed to be, you know, a very even-headed sort of public servant. But, you know, his, his obsession with the the uh the the warfare of it of it all sort of gets in the way of him doing his job in a way that's unique and different i think from from noah because she also obviously has a very vested personal interest in the 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 mechanical side of it all like she really loves labors and like you know piloting them and caring for them etc etc it's like but it's more of a hobby thing for her she's not doing it because like she has this like warrior spirit or whatever it's just like she's she's interested in it for the for for the love of piloting not oh, for more any specifically type she's of, in like, it warfare. for the the love of the the robot like she's you're yeah. right that she doesn't care so much about being a a fighter in the same way that it does but she really does have a love uh, a deep love actually for alphonse and and whether it's because it's it's a robot and she just is like a robot nut or whether she just appreciates like this 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 robo taco like, yeah i mean whatever it is and you're right that they contrast with each other ota's more than happy to uh, be trigger happy and go on the offensive in these scenarios while she is like no i don't want to i don't want to hurt alphonse <laughs> that's the important thing <laughs> you know we talk about the op and she just wants to uh, clean clean Alphonse and sing about his glistening metal body and uh, makes her heart go doki doki like that's that's who she is. that's who she is and I think it's kind of endearing in that way that she's I, there really just I to wonder, get close to the robots. I I wonder if they made that her characterization because they're like well she's going to be the character that relates most to the people that are probably buying 
this OVA that are mm. the mecha the mecha nerds <laughs> that are just in love with the mechs themselves, so they can fantasize <laughs> of just like, oh, there's a girl just like me that is also in love with the mech. <laughs> <laughs> Well, See, think, this think... could be you. This could be you too, audience. If you buy the model kits, <laughs> you can go on a jog with your robot. <laughs> I, I thought yeah. it was kind of a, a nice subversion, though. You know, you have the, the two main characters, a a guy and a girl, and it's the girl that is the the the, the, the robot pilot that mm-hmm. she's kind of obsessed with it, and it's the guy that is really the second in command. They're like, you know, her her sort of support officer that sure. actually kind of hates robots. And sure. uh, I think we see that more in the TV series where Shinohara sort of takes a bad seat to Noah consistently through the series. Whereas here in the first of the two-parter, like we focus on him throughout the beginning when he's trying to find a place to stay and somebody to swim around with. It was kind of a, a, a distinct yeah. um, point of view for most of the TV mm. series. And it's and it's baked into his sort of character background too. It's like he he kind of resents the labors in a sense. He certainly doesn't love them, mostly because you know he is the heir to the Shinohara Heavy Industries company, basically, and he's like estranged from his dad. So like he associates the 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 robots with this sort of family awkwardness that he's just kind of trying to run away from. Mm. So it's like he he can never get to the point where he embraces them like Noah does because of all that baggage. So they have a very a very good contrast another great uh sort of contrasting character motivations just in that simple context for his for his character. When when I was watching his character, I couldn't help but think of a particular archetype that I'm so used to in the amount of shows I've watched where he kind of reminded me of a, a Cinderay type character because he comes from a wealthy background that he doesn't, he kind of wants to get away from. Every time he talks to Noah, he gets very defensive and gets very up in arms about stuff, which is a very common Cinderay like uh, trait. And it was kind of interesting for me because usually a Cinderay character is a female. There are male Cinderella characters, but they're very rare. Like, there's Inuyasha is definitely a, like a male Cinderella character, or uh, Bat and Fist of the North Star, but it's it's rare, and it was kind of interesting to see that for me. You're saying he should have been voiced by Rhea Kugamiya. <laughs> it is I. <laughs> hey, Rhea Kugamiya plays Alphonse Elric, so you know, keeping it, it, keeping it back. There's the connection. Hey. <laughs> I have one question for you, Tobias. Since you, probably, I've watched a little bit of the of the TV series, but not as much probably as you. But from what I remember in the TV series, Clancy is kind of like the typical ice princess, and is kind of a rival to Noah. Is that? Whereas in this, in the OVA, 
she's just kind of here and more like I'm very confident and cool and collected in my skin and what I what I know what I can mm-hmm. do. Whereas at least in the TV series from what I watched, she seemed cool, but also very insecure about her status. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's been a while since I sat on and watched it, so I could be misremembering. I, I, can, I guess I can get that read. She's definitely more aloof than Noah is, for sure. I think I still came away with her, even originally, thinking that she's just a very competent sort of character. I think I do want to echo Austin earlier comment that the TV show is eh, it's there. Like a lot of it is kind of fluffy filler. I think that it's worthwhile simply because we get deeper looks at these goofy characters. It is very much a sitcom uh, throughout and not every sitcom plot is, is going to be great or good. It also but, does uh, have, I a, really think good, it's kind it does of have a good, it does have a good, it does have, it's not as good, but it does have a good, opening theme song of the tv series mm-hmm. oh yeah and the ending too midnight blue man oh, both i had right. like a i had a solid year where i just had Midnight blue pretty much on repeat <laughs> going to work <laughs> Midnight blue is so good i sure. will say it, at least in this ova it does not fall for the trap that i think urusei yatsura by nature has and like other rumiko takahashi stuff does where i i feel like like none of the female characters in pat labor at least in this ova are rivals simply because they are other girls like they all get along they don't all interact that much but they never like bicker or fight among themselves over like petty things it always seems like it's the dudes who are doing that it's never the ladies well and they, they, the dudes also never put down noah like there's a bit of a, an initial shock in the first episode but then she's just part of the crew like there's never yep. like you don't know what you're talking about or why is she the the labor pilot they're just like mm-hmm. yeah we're doing our we're doing our job yeah they all sort of honor their expertise and they don't ever seem to put them down at all well i i recall a bit more bickering you know more slapstick bickering in the tv series at least mm-hmm. but it's not I don't think it's making like 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 Bill mentioned. It's not like they're putting, um, you know, like the female characters against each other because of a dream that it's, it serves a greater comedic purpose than just, you know, it's really hard to say they don't fall into tropes because literally the entire show is made up of character tropes and they are they are all the stereotypical clowns that you expect them to be. But yeah, it does it does feel refreshing in a way that other anime, especially older anime, uh, during that period that Bill likes to call '80s yuck yuck. Um, falls into the trap. Pat Lieber kind of avoids it in a lot of ways. Yeah, it just mm-hmm. seems a little bit more mature, even though it can be mm-hmm. kind of goofy and immature at times, but it just feels like it's it's punching a little bit higher than some of its contemporaries, probably because all of these characters are firmly adults. There's no yeah. high school nonsense in Pat Lieber <laughs> whatsoever. So what do we think of uh, sort of the mid-show genre parodies that they do? Because... <laughs> In in hindsight, they definitely st- they stood out to me a little bit. Well, I'll even say this: they stood out to me whenever I watched this for the first time because I don't think I really expected this show about like cops with robots to like have a monster movie parody and then like a Sherlock Holmes Scooby Doo kind of episode like right smack dab in the middle of this OVA. It just felt like they were like, ooh, this would be a cool idea to do because we are turbo nerds about specific things. 
you know, in the writer's room. Uh, so what what did you guys think about about those? I thought it was interesting, again, having seen this in the reverse order with the TV first and the OVA after, I, I really enjoyed the, the series as a whole as being a sort of a, a condensed version of, of the Pat Lieber story. But looking at it now, where that's not true, the opposite of true, I do think it is strange that the fully half of the series is just genre parodies yeah. <laughs> to a degree. I guess there's only so much you can do with the basic workaday uh, cop comedy stuff, and they pretty much nailed it in the first two episodes. Like, hey, what other kind of stuff can we do in this setting with giant robots? Well, let's do a more mysterious thing with a, um, I guess, a Godzilla in the bay, or let's kind of <laughs> do a, a murder mystery sort of sort of shtick, but it just happens to have a giant robot there. You know, how do we take these stereotype? you know, stereotypical character trope characters, these, these clown characters, what situations can we put them in now with a Pat Labor spin on things? Well, I think just the key is they wanted variety because there's only, like you said, there's only so many cop stories you can tell and they want to diversify and do different things and doing these type of parodies allow them to do that. I thought they were pretty fun. Like, Clancy doing her best Detective Conan monologue at the end was a lot of was a lot of fun, <laughs> and also now after watching all of the Showa era Godzilla movies and most of the Heisei era Godzilla movies, I appreciated the Godzilla parody a lot more and the callbacks. Like the Mad Scientist is the Mad Scientist from the first Godzilla movie. And oh shoot! That, was... that just occurred to me. He totally is, isn't he? Because he's got an eye patch too, right? Yep. Exactly. Oh he, my god! He, he shows up with the oxygen. That. He shows up with the oxygen destroyer at the end. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's right. He does. And they also come up with the same sort of ways to how do we destroy or defeat the monster? But I love how basically they have this montage of just like well let's do this nah that won't work <laughs> and the, the intense music of just here's other idea we should electrify the lakes but it'll kill all the fish but we'll get the monster to come out <laughs> we'll use sound think... waves we'll try reasoning with it <laughs> so do you guys consider the the two-part episode the Special Vehicles Division 2's Longest Day. Do you consider that to be a genre parody? I guess, but to me, that one doesn't register as much of a genre parody within the context of this show because it seems like something that would come up in, like, a cop drama, but in in a way that, like, a giant monster in the ocean episode right. is yeah. not something that I expect from a cop drama. It's, it's yeah, a mood I don't, I don't see it as a... I don't see it as a parody exactly, but I do kind of feel like this is the point where she wanted to do a movie, a more serious movie. And yeah. I mean, isn't this pretty much a dry run for the actual Pat Labor movies, really? Pretty much. It, I mean, it has a very similar tone to it. It's a. am going to say it's a dry run for Pat Labor too. I will say Tobias, Pat Labor 1, the first movie, is more aligned with the OVA series. So I think you should at least see Pat Labor 1. The, the, the first yeah. movie because uh, it's more in line with the OVA but it definitely is a dry run for Pat Labor 2 without the scenes of philosophizing about what is what is our world and what is life 
man. Mm-hmm. I do feel like, you know, just looking at the whole thing from a macro sense, that I feel like I would have been a little bit disappointed in the if 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 I knew the OVA was only going to be six episodes and they weren't going to be able to do that extra seventh episode because the OVA ended up being pretty successful and they could afford to do one. I don't know that I would have really loved the ending of episode six because it just kind of ends and it ends on a focus of like the terrorist leader. Like literally it's his face in the ending, but it's like there's really no resolution or time spent with our main cast. You know, the cast we're supposed to fall in love with throughout the course of these OVAs. It just feels like a really weird ending to me. When that, that the two-parter feels kind of disjointed a little bit because that first part is all dealing with Asuma just trying to find some place to stay and his kind of pathetic lot in life. And then the second I part I loved is... that. But no, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying yeah. basically it's not really connected with part two until the very end. Yeah. It's a, Whereas it's a B plot. It's, it's very, well, it's the A plot for most of part one. And then it becomes mm-hmm. the B plot towards the end mm-hmm. <laughs> where it just kind of goes away. And then that whole part two is very much like, Oh, we need to save our money. So we're going to cut down on the mech uh, aspects, except for the one sequence in the tunnel where they do the big bridge jump. But that's basically our big action sequence that we can afford. Most of it is talking love... and, and figuring out what to do next. I did love the sequence where Shinobu is talking to the, I guess it's the government officials. And she basically pulls in Nick Fury where she's just like, you've elected to make a stupid decision, so I have elected to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. The, the last episode does feel maybe not as well utilized. The last Oshi I... episode. Well, no, I would say that the last episode, it kind of, I on the one hand, I think it, it maybe doesn't live up to the rest of the series. However, I do agree with you that if they had left it at the end of the, the part two, the, 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 the longest day episode, it would have been strange to end mm. like that. I get that OVA productions can be a little disjointed because of the way they're being released. But I do think that despite its faults, I do like that. The last episode is the the ending of the series. What episode seven? Yeah, episode seven, because it yeah. gives everyone a chance to actually do labor things and get in the robot Noah and yep. uh, fight a guy. And even though there's not really a villain, like it kind of ends amicably and this doesn't have as high stakes as the longest day. I, I agree that you know it it, it would have been a strange ending had they just left it like yeah. That. Yeah, that episode seven is kind of a weird one because it feels a bit like an echo of episode two, but yeah. not quite as strong. I think it's it's a fun bonus. Like if you view it as a bonus, yeah. sure. Then I yeah. I think you'll enjoy it more because you get a lot more action than you got in the first in the two parter. You get mm-hmm. if you're if you're in it for the mechs, you get a ton of mechs because you get not only the pet labors that we've grown to love and enjoy but you get like those two green military ones and that red one with the really Mm. cool neck design so i Mm -hmm. think if Mm -hmm. if you're i think if you kind of view it as a bonus treat and not as a finale then you'll enjoy it a lot more my favorite labor was the one covered in swamp stuff with the skeleton in it that was that was kind of weird 
<laughs> but I guess this is just part of the, the OVA cycle. We, it's easy for us to think 30 years removed to think of them like all like Gunbuster, where it's a short six episode fully realized, you know, story. Whereas sometimes it was just, okay, we need to put out the next video in a month or so. So let's just hammer out something. Or, let's give all their attention to one episode in particular, but don't worry too much about the story and just let it go. You know, that, that happened just as much. There were just as many gunbusters. Yeah, or the OVA was just like, here's two episodes to promote the manga. Please go check it out, like Battle Angel Alita or uh, Riding Bean or or the the stuff uh, like uh, Ninja Scroll or something like that, where it's just, here, here's an hour. We're going to give you some cool animation and you're not going to (laughs) get, don't expect a long story. If you want more, you can go check out the manga or TV series or whatever happens. Well, from that perspective, Pat Labor is kind of like the perfect case study of like, all right, guys, we're going to try doing this OVA of this new property that we don't really know about. It's brand new. It's not based on anything. And here you go. Everybody loves it. All right, great. We're going to make a seventh episode because everybody loved it so much. Oh, you guys really like that? Let's do two movies. Oh, you guys really liked those? Here's a whole TV show and a sequel. So it's kind of, you know, when you look at it with some hindsight, it's probably, well, I don't I don't know exactly, but it seems to be one of the most successful versions of this model of releasing. That's true. The only OVA I can think of that had a strong narrative and somehow kept going was is LOGH because that was built on its narrative. And if they had stopped, it would have been pretty jarring but somehow they were able to get enough people to buy it every month to get the next episode out mm-hmm. but even then they had the added benefit of it being you know based on an existing property that already had a fan base but let's not get into the details all right well uh, one of the things i kind of wanted to point out here is just the, the the very nature of the police work at a comedy i feel like in the 80s this would be a little more rote but with the way things have sort of shifted over the past, I don't know, five, ten years, it does feel a little strange to celebrate, you know, this, this this sort of police comedy. It does. It seems strange that we have these regular characters just doing this cop stuff without any sort of high stakes political commentary on that, especially coming from somebody like Oshii that is has a whole series with political commentary. How do you guys how did you guys feel about that in the series? It's always tough to to sort of read things from like a of a a very different time and a very different culture you know through the lens of how we feel about them now but but that being said, I do feel like there is a opportunity in pat labor that's not really taken advantage of necessary well how do i say this so it seems like pat labor really does treat the job of policing very much like public service work in the sense that they're just like public employees and their public employee job just happens to be like law enforcement but most of the time like it's actually kind of not that in this show because most of the time the types of criminals that they deal with are like terrorists or government military rebels and things like that you know not normal 
standard police work in the typical sense. It's like military work, which is kind of interesting. So it's in a way, it's kind of divorced from policing as a profession as we kind of generally understand it. And it also doesn't really comment on that too much. It mostly comments on things from like a perspective of the military in the sense of, you know, Japan has a very different relationship with their their domestic self-defense force than necessarily the United right. States does with our own military. So it's 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 very difficult to say anything super definitive. I definitely think that if you're looking at it from the perspective of I don't know, making too much light of police work. I can definitely sympathize with that. But, you know, Pat Labor is also, it's very, it's very alien to ways that we would maybe think about those things in like modern Western media context. I'll slightly disagree with your point, Austin. I think they do illustrate some police work, uh, like the bomb threat. That would be something that a bomb squad from the police would probably deal with, or I think it's in the first episode or maybe the third where there is a standoff between the police and a gunman holding people hostage in like a building. And eventually, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it's Noah that's just like, I'm, I'm so tired of this and basically <laughs> has her gun go through the building and that kind of freaks the the kidnappers out. <laughs> so I, I do think there is not a lot, but there is some illustration of of general police work, although those are very specialized examples. Yeah, um, yeah. It's very skewed, I think. Like the majority of the of the things that they get into are like very high level criminality. Uh, well, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. There's there's certainly more mundane, well, I guess more mundane things that they do tackle, but... Well, it'd be hard for them to do kind of mundane things like investigating a robbery or dealing with a potential stabbing with a giant mecha robot. <laughs> so, nah, I'd love that. <laughs> I think that'd be funny. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I, I'm not okay. saying I'm against it, but I think that'd be difficult for them to, to pull off without causing some damage to... <laughs> the, the urban city around them because as we as is illustrated throughout the show most of their work is like taking place on the interstate or it's in like big open areas it's never oh, you know i did nitty-gritty of the city that's true i guess i did I, I guess i forgot that angle right because like the pat labor team they're not they're not beat cops because we see the beat cops in the show and mm-hmm. like the pat labor unit i guess they are more of a paramilitary type of thing they're kind of this in between between they're they're you like know, the cops unit. and the military they're, yeah there's there's swat there's swat team basically yeah so i guess from that angle it does kind of make sense i mean they are, they're specifically there to combat labor related crimes so they they are uh, by their yeah. nature not be crimes but they're there to if somebody commandeers a construction labor like in episode one they're there to yeah. to fight back in a way that the normal cops couldn't do such so i guess that makes a little more sense it, it's just kind of odd to me that knowing oshi would go on to the kerberos stuff the jinro wolf brigade type of stuff a more uh, hard-nosed look at policing and stuff like the student protest movement the yeah. political action mm-hmm. that is very very japanese it just it just kind of strikes me as very interesting that we have a very 
idealized look at police force and pat labor and i guess that yoshi's not the only person that made this series of course so that could be messed up too far but i just, I just think it's kind he of did. interesting again hmm? he does well i mean um, he does hint about like dealing with the bureaucracy of a police force with the two-parter where the upper brass yeah. is very adamant of no, we cannot go towards the terrorists because we are very afraid of what they will do, even though it might be a bluff. So we're playing we're playing it safe because of the ramifications that might happen and the political red tape that comes with that. And he also illustrates that very strongly in the Pat Labor Two movie. Like that's mm. that's Oshi at his most Oshi is is Pat <laughs> Labor Two. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I don't know. I f- I feel like you know his personal developing feelings on how to express these criticisms in media is is something that through the pat labor OVA we are seeing begin and i think sort of culminates in some of his later work like in ghost in the shell and whatnot so if pat labor took place in the far-flung future of 2028 what type of episode do you think we would get Hmm. i think i think we'd get more something akin to the ghost in the shell tv series if we're going away from like the goofy more lighthearted tone and we're doing something more serious it'd be more in line with standalone complex noah and the crew would have to deal with their own january 6th <laughs> that's, that's right <laughs> where were you on that day oh no <laughs> no we would see um we would see the mechanics smuggling in like actual military surplus hardware <laughs> and getting yeah. in trouble for that it's almost impossible to imagine kind of what that would be like and how like probably horrible it would be. I don't know. It'd be so interesting. I mean, yeah, a, 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 more, a, a more highly skilled uh, writer than myself would certainly have to conceive of possible storylines that they could deal with. But it would be interesting. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, th- I feel like the modern the modern uh, pat labor a bit is kind of like psychopaths where like they deal with things that are certainly much more modern problems like AI and the internet and 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 social uh tension problems but uh but but psychopaths doesn't have nearly the the levity that that pat labor can have at times because you know there's some downtime in psychopaths but most of it's like pontificating about you know what it means to have a colored criminal code or something i don't or, know or no we're basically <laughs> boogie. It'd be like it'd be like pet labor is our main objective is keeping everything in a calm stasis and burying anything that ripples from going up above because that's basically the whole point of psychopaths mm-hmm. right is anything that causes uncomfortable emotion we need to bury it and yeah just slam it down status <laughs> quo what... maintain the status quo Na- maintain I... the calm ocean view <laughs> i i think there would be an episode where somebody mints an nft of alphonse and izumi mm. tracks them down to murder them <laughs> mm. <laughs> be, be, be careful production ig or studio d might say oh that's a good idea we should do that <laughs> okay well, they did yeah, make a Pat Labor, like a live action Pat Labor reboot. I don't really know what it's about, but I know it exists. Didn't, wasn't Oshie involved, involved in the live action uh, TV show? Could be. I mean, I mean, if, if it's Pat Labor related, one would think that he would be involved in one way or another. 
Also, he'd be jumping up and down because it's live action. And he'd be like, yes, get another chance. Sort of to, to cap off our conversation here, we want to do the thing that we try and remember to do every episode, which is talk about what for us is the most iconic scene that we will think of whenever we think of the Pat Labor OVA. I think for me, it will be the scene where Shinohara shows up at uh, Clancy's apartment on New Year's because he's like <laughs> trying to find somebody to hang out with. And he like he like surprises her by like pulling out a flower and like he's trying to be he's trying to be like cutesy and like quick about it and like he pulls it out of his pocket really fast and like sticks it up in her face and then she pulls out a gun because she's always like in self defense mode and like he's he's just got like this like face of i did not expect her to pull a gun on me <laughs> see that's so exactly what i'm talking about i'm talking about comedic timing cuz the way the camera focuses quickly on the rose and he yes. slowly pans to his face that has been in shock and <laughs> like fear the entire time. But like, so good. it's just a perfect, perfect way I shot his frame. And that episode in particular, not not to derail, but I, I really like how up until that point, Clancy has been characterized as very much like she's very smart. She's very cunning. She's very good at her job, but she hadn't really given been given an opportunity to have like sort of, of an emotional moment. And, like, you you think that they're going to play on the fact that she's, like, a robot and she has, like, no personality because they, they show her basically sitting in a dark apartment watching the news, saying nothing whenever Shinohara's trying to hang out with her. And then, you know, he asks her a question about it and she's like, oh, no, I was supposed to be gone to see my grandma, but, like, my flight was delayed or something. And I'm just like, oh, well, that was nice. So they're showing that, you know, she does have some, there's a human angle here. I could easily see the writers taking a character like that and just making her one note, but they don't. They add in those little, that that one little tiny flourish that gives us, the audience members, reason to think, oh, wow, she's she's more well-rounded than maybe we initially thought. I think uh, my most iconic scene... Funny enough, I I didn't recognize it the first time I watched it, but I just I talked about it earlier. But that first person shot of Clancy running through the doors just just really blew me away. In that episode, I'm just like, wow, it looks really cool. And I I just loved the the camera choice they did for that sequence. I will also say as a slight bonus, I love the whole bomb diffusion sequence in episode two it's just a good mixture of comedy and the kind of the action pressure of 
oh no, we have only a certain amount of time. What do we do? And then Clancy putting just the, the cherry on top with her iconic line. It's, it's great. Well, for me, I think the most iconic part is the opening, of course. The opening is so good. Um, I talked about the the TV ending, Midnight Blue, and uh, the opening for that's pretty catchy. But man, this one here is just, it's great. I I always like enjoyed watching this for each of the seven episodes. Well, it's actually the only six episodes. They don't do that for the last one. Just uh, a lot of fun. It's kind of, uh, it's fun to see Izumi just being kind of goofy uh, with, with Alphonse. But the song is just a bop. Very catchy, very nice. But if I had to pick something in the show itself, you know, this this certainly has the OVA budget. There's a lot of great uh, Sakaga scenes all throughout. I think the one where, like, um, the very last episode, they're chasing the um the the the, the truck with the stolen labor, and like it shoots up the cop cars on the road, and like just the way it's animated is is perfect, chef's guess. But uh, one thing that kind of stood out to me, and you guys made me think of it earlier was the part where they ride the blimp above the overpass. So like the labor can't scratch under this overpass. So there's a blimp in the air and they radio the blimp. It says, Hey, we need your help. And the guy in the blimp's like, yes, I've always wanted to do this. I've never had my chance. <laughs> so he zooms down. Uh, Alphonse grabs on to like, I don't know the, the carriage, I guess, of the blimp. I don't, is that what that's called? I don't, I don't really know much about blimps. And, the like, blimp rides, basket. The blimp basket. So they ride the blimp basket over the overpass, and the, the pilot's just kind of cackling maniacally. That's how stupid this scenario is. And that really kind of sums up Pat Labor. It's like you could tell that they are all, like we mentioned earlier, they're all mecha fans. They're all giant robot fans. They to come up with scenarios like this and even have their characters like, like maniacally enjoy it while it's happening is a lot of fun. I think this has kind of inspired me to want to go back and rewatch portions of the tv show because i don't really remember very much of it other than enjoying it and i never finished it back in the back whenever i watched it a couple years ago so i will probably put on some pat labor in the background um uh pretty soon in the near future but what about you guys alphonse and chill (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh i i should revisit the tv series for sure and definitely need to get on those movies I, I like the OVA series as a little encapsulation of what Pat Lieber is all about. Only seven episodes, not a huge time commitment. It was very easy for me to sit down and watch it um, this past week or so. I didn't feel like I needed to rush through at all. And it just really sums up what Pat Lieber is about. I, I would still recommend the TV series uh, just to get a better glimpse of these characters and to spend more time with them. One thing that I didn't see, and this is maybe the mecha nerd part, but they show this a lot in the TV series, but not really in the OVAs. When the AV-98 goes to grab its huge um, Gundam pistol revolver, it's it doesn't really bend over to grab it out of its leg holster. Its arm actually telescopes downward and grabs it. And it's such a, it's such a small thing that they show quite a lot of in the TV series. It's kind of a, a neat little thing, you know? You... Even something like in Votoms, where all the mecha have like roller skates, basically, as they, they zip around on the battlefield rather than running. Um, the the Alphonse just has this weird telescoping arm that is kind of a fun little detail. You could tell that, that the animators had fun just like drawing that and animating it and, and whatnot. It's cool. Pat Lieber's cool. Watch Pat Lieber, man. <laughs> um... After watching this OVA series, 
it definitely it's funny enough i want to go watch pet labor 2 again because i think the juxtaposition from going from the ova to pet labor 2 was probably a bit jarring for me so i think going in knowing what pet labor 2 is uh would uh I'd be more prepared for it and probably have a different perspective. And there's some things in Pet Labor 2 that really sticks with me, like when uh, Noah goes to Alphonse and basically says, I've grown up, I don't I don't need you anymore. And it's kind of like, I always wondered if that was Oshi sort of communicating with the fans of the Pet Labor series of, maybe it's it's time to grow up. No. It's not. It's not time to grow up. Enjoy your robots. Thank you. It's time to grow up and go watch um, Jinro. <laughs> Jin, Jinro up. On that note, thank you guys so much for joining me for this episode. Really appreciate the opportunity to talk about the Pat Labor OVA. And of course, like we mentioned at the top of the show, we couldn't have done it without the generous support of Drew H being our executive producer for this episode. You can go check out Drew's own podcast, Sidebirds and Cigarettes, a loop on the third podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go listen to him uh, as a special guest along with his co-host Emma on our episode from last year covering, what was it, Goodbye Partner? It was good, my partner, yeah. Yep. So you can hear hear Drew in the flesh. I don't know. That's not a phrase. That doesn't make any sense. But anyway, you can hear that episode on the Third Impact feed. And if you want to listen to more episodes of Third Impact Anime, you can always check our content archive over on our website, thirdimpactanime.com. If you want to support the podcast and get your own suggestion reviewed here on the show by us, maybe... Uh, go over to our Patreon. If you support us at the Nerve Commander level, which is $5 a month, you get the opportunity to suggest titles for us to review, and you will get executive producer credit, just like Drew did. You can go check that out at patreon.com slash thirdimpactanime. There's also a couple of other tiers that you can take advantage of for some paltry bonuses but i think they're okay for what they are i guess sure why not we're not charging you that much money just give us a dollar it's no big deal you don't need that dollar it was just gonna get dirty in your pocket you're gonna spend that on coffee anyway exactly you can send it to austin we'll spend it on coffee absolutely give me coffee money <laughs> pay for my coffee thank you uh, but thank you bill and tobias again for joining me on this episode uh you can find the third impact anime podcast of course on our website we are also on a bunch of different social media platforms at least for the time being uh but the best place to talk to all of us is probably in the third impact anime discord which you can find an invite to both pinned to our instagram page and over on our website again thirdimpactanime.com and that's probably the best way to get in touch with us but anything you guys want to say before we close this one out you just go go hang out on the Discord. Discord's a lot of fun. It's been pretty active lately. It's it's with a lot of uh, fun chatter about movies and what's been going on with all the as of this recording, uh, Anime Expo ended and San Diego Comic Con ended. So there's been a lot of chatter about stuff like the Adult Swim Uzumaki show and a bunch of other fun stuff. So go to our Discord and just. 
just it's a good it's a good time good chatting with people i was gonna say if you want to hear more from uh drew rach and his hobbies he mentions that every time he goes to the movies which is like twice a day <laughs> on the discord <laughs> as well as uh his right stuff purchases so if we want to shame drew <laughs> into spending way too much money on anime dvds that's the place to do it well clearly lord knows i love to do it Clearly, he uh, <laughs> loves to waste money because he paid for this episode. Haha, <laughs> gotcha. He's a glutton for punishment, <laughs> that's for damn sure. All right, folks, thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next one. Make sure to keep your labor nice and shiny. Yeah.